0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab the father of Nation. And Nation the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ubayud, and Ubayud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. And Elihu, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Matin. Matin, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ. 14 generations this is the word of the Lord let's pray father we stand in this place this morning with your word open your word open to us Lord what we just read God looks like a a set a data set of, of information And yet, God, we know that this is Your Word to us, and so it's for so much more than information. God, this is captured in the Scriptures for transformation. And so, God, would You wake up our sleepy souls this morning? Would You open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts this morning to receive Your Word, to see what it is that You would have us see in this passage? God, for the brothers and sisters in Christ who come into this room, would you minister to them by your Spirit in the specific ways that they need today, in the ways that only you can? God, we're so grateful that you are a God who who welcomes us into a family like this, your family, the body of Christ. And you welcome us as we gather like this on Sunday mornings. And you say, bring, bring all your garbage, bring all of your troubles, bring all your weaknesses and sins. Lord, you don't tell us to check that at the door. Bring all of our doubts and all of our wondering, all of our fears and concerns and impatience. You say, bring it all here. Don't check it at the door. Bring it all here, but then lay it down at the cross. And Father, you. Meet us in the midst of all of that. And so meet us this morning. Spirit of God, minister to us this morning in the ways only you can, in the places only we need, in the places only you know of. Now pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, hey, my grandfather um, on my dad's side... He was really into genealogy. In fact, way before Ancestry.com was a thing, um, Merville D. Bumgarner was traveling around the country gaining information on the Bumgarner family line, talking to people, doing the weird sorts of things like driving into um, cemeteries and taking pictures of, of headstones, tracing out the line, right, working his way east driving the back roads in one of his many red Chevy pickups, talking to distant cousins and so on, all of which culminated in the proud presentation one year at Christmas of a set of three-inch binders, one for each kid. My dad and his siblings presented with the Bumgarner family history. I think I was in high school when that happened. I remember thinking at the time, like we're sitting around the Christmas tree with my siblings and my cousins, and Grandpa comes out and proudly presents these binders and explains to them what they are. I remember thinking at the time, how boring, right? I mean, it's like pull your hair out, boring. I I really couldn't think of something much more boring at the time than reading the Bumgarner family history. In fact, it's only been as I've grown older. Only as I've grown up and matured that I've even begun to have an appreciation for family history. Grown in understanding the significance even of what my grandfather accomplished in compiling all of that. Now the, the passage of scripture here in Matthew chapter 1 was the same way for me when I first became a Christian. I remember looking at this passage, right? Because when, when you first become a Christian, what do people tell you to do? They tell you to start reading the Bible, but they tell you to start reading the New Testament. You don't want to get into that old boring Old Testament stuff, right? So they tell you, you start in the New Testament. So I'm a new Christian. I got this Bible, and I opened up to the index because I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And I'm looking for this section called the New Testament, whatever it is that that means. And I find that the first book of this thing called the New Testament is Matthew. And so I open up the Bible. I'm, again, I'm a new Christian. I open up the Bible to Matthew chapter 1, which I'm supposed to read, right, because I'm a new believer. And I find this, a list of names, 95% of which I can't pronounce. And please don't make me pass a spelling test, right? I remember thinking, looking at this passage and thinking, how boring, right? And even like, what, what, what is this? What's it for? Did it mean anything? How could it possibly be important? How could it possibly be relevant to my life? And it's only been as I've grown older. Only as I've grown up and matured some as a follower of Christ. Only as o- over the years I've been able to slowly read through and, and and learn the Old Testament and some of the stories and some of these names, and man, that takes a long time, doesn't it? It's hard, it's hard work, it's hard going to read through the Old Testament. But only as I've done that have I grown in appreciation for Matthew chapter 1. And now as I stand here this morning, th- this text doesn't simply stir in me a sense of appreciation. Man, it stirs in me a sense of worship. Worship. Most of you are probably a lot like I was, and you're looking at this passage like I used to look at this passage, and some of you are still actually waking back up because you actually nodded off a little bit while I was reading. That's one of the reasons why I had you stand, so you'd stay awake, right? <laughs> this passage, for, for some of you, it's, it's sleep-inducing. Can we just be honest? I mean, if you're here and you're not a Christian yet, it's, it's confusing. It's mysterious. But listen, for Matthew's original readers, if you were Jewish, and this text wasn't sleep-inducing, it was life-altering. For the Jews, at least for the ones whose ears had been opened up, right, to hear the good news of Jesus. For the Jews, they, they didn't have to grow in an appreciation for this passage. They had an instant, glorious appreciation for this passage because this genealogy. Was good news. It was glorious news. This was worship inducing news. It was good news of great joy. And so here's all I want to do this morning. I, I, all I want to do this morning is simply ask and answer two questions from this text. Number one, what did it tell them? What did this text communicate? To Matthew's original audience, why was it good news to them? And then secondly, what does it tell us? What does it communicate to us? Why is it good news to us? Just two questions. What did it tell them? What does it tell us? Now to understand what this text told them, we first need to recognize that Matthew's original audience was most certainly Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians, we might say, with a now growing commitment to the Gentile mission. Or to say it another way, Jewish Christians growing in commitment to seeing God's saving grace being extended to everyone. The nations. They were also historical people who knew their history. They didn't need three-ring binders delivered up at Christmas. They grew up hearing and retelling the family history. It was ingrained in them. So much so as as they heard this list of names, right, a, a plethora of images would have flooded in to their minds. Each of these names was as loaded with meaning for each of them as each distant cousin's story was loaded with meaning for my grandpa. There would have been vivid memories, nostalgic memories, as they heard these names. Various ones would have touched their hearts and stirred their minds of, of stories, history that they'd been told since infants, stories of God and stories of sin, great stories of, of faithfulness and great stories of failure. Good times and bad times, good kings and bad ones. But look, there's also some problems here if you really look at this passage. The passage itself is structured with three sets of 14 names. Three sets of what Matthew calls 14 generations. From Abraham to David, that's verses 2 through 6. Covering basically Genesis through 2 Samuel of your Old Testament. And then from Solomon to the exile, that's the second set, verses 7 through 11, covering basically 1 Kings through most of the rest of your Old Testament, with a few exceptions. And then from the end of the exile, this period in the history of God's Old Testament people, the, the end of the exile all the way up to Jesus, verses 12 through 16, covering books like Ezra and Nehemiah, and minor prophets like Zechariah and Malachi. But look, Matthew, he he skips some generations in here. The genealogy is not complete. He also includes the name of five women here, which is unusual in a first century genealogy. Nothing against the ladies here today, but this was unusual because descent was typically traced strictly through the men as the head of the family. But here, Matthew is careful to also include the names of women. There's other challenges in this list. I'm not going to go into all of them, but it's kind of fun to explore, for example, why Asaph, the psalmist, is named in verse 7. Instead of Asa, the king, who the Old Testament records as the son of Abijah and the father of Jehoshaphat, why does he do that? likely to make a literary point rather than a historical one. He's grabbing our attention psalmists were singers of God's praise. Perhaps that's a clue as to how we're to read this list. You see, Matthew here, with his genealogy, unlike Grandpa Merville, he's he's not trying to provide a precise historical rendition of the family history. He's not trying to make sure that he gets every little branch of the family tree documented perfectly. He has a much bigger purpose. Again, each of these names would have evoked memories of the people of God. Abraham. Abraham was the the first father. His name literally means father of multitude. It was a name preloaded with meaning. It was to Abraham that the promises were made way back in Genesis 12. If you haven't read Genesis 12 for a while, I'd encourage you to do that this afternoon. There's a really important spot in Genesis 12 that helps us to understand what Matthew's doing in Matthew 1. You remember Genesis 12? God came to Abraham and he makes him a threefold promise that he'd make his name great. And then he's, he's going to give him lots of kids and, and grandkids. He's going to turn Abraham's line into a great nation. And to this great nation, he's going to give them this land, the, the promised land. And then the, through him, through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. Then we have Isaac, Abraham's one and only son, who was to be sacrificed on the mountain but rescued at the last minute when God provided the sacrifice instead. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, one of whom, of course, was Joseph, who was responsible for the relocation of God's people to Egypt to avoid the famine at the end of the book of Genesis, which eventually led to the enslavement of God's people in Exodus, followed by by the Exodus um, that we read of in the book of. Exodus, good, you're paying attention, that's good. God's people were enslaved in Egypt, and then they come out in the Exodus under the leadership of Moses. Then we've got Tamar on the list. Tamar was obliged to play the harlot in order to trick her father-in-law into keeping his promises in Genesis 38. She was also a Canaanite, not an Israelite. And it's like, what, what is she doing in, in here? And it's sort of one of those branches in the family tree that you'd maybe be tempted to leave out of the three-ring binder, right? Rahab was the prostitute in the book of Joshua who helped the spies to scope out the city of Jericho. She, too, was a Gentile. Ruth is morally the least questionable of the women here. However, she was a Moabite, not an Israelite, which means she, too, was a Gentile. Why include Gentile women in the genealogy, Matthew? Again, it's a clue to how we're to read this. You have to remember where we're at in the book of Matthew. This is chapter 1. It's something we would call a bookend, right? And the thing about bookends is there's two of them. They're at the ends of the book, right? So you have this section in Matthew 1. And if you know any verses from the book of Matthew, you probably know a verse from Matthew 28. One of the most famous verses in the New Testament, right? The Great Commission. Where Jesus says to his disciples after the resurrection, before the ascension, he says, go. Go and do what? Make disciples of who? All nations. All nations. Matthew is making a literary point here by including Gentile women. And the literary point that he is making is that the gospel of Jesus is for the nations. He's making it clear here that the the Gospel is, is not just for the Jews. It's for the Jews and the Greeks. There is no Jew, no Greek. There is no slave, nor free. There is no male, nor female. There's no prostitute and pure. There's no insider and out. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul teaches us in Galatians. Next we have David. King David, we're told. It's specified here, King David in verse 6. There's lots of kings in the list, but only David is referred to as King David. The same King David whom God made a covenant with in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Another one of those places, if you haven't read it for a while, I'd encourage you to go read 2 Samuel chapter 7 this afternoon. This is important in understanding Matthew chapter 1. 2 Samuel 7 is where God promised David that his throne would be established forever. Forever. Then there's Solomon, the wisest man ever. Wrote most of the book of Proverbs as well as Ecclesiastes. He's David's son by the wife of Uriah. Matthew can't seem to bring himself to name Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the one whom David had the adulterous affair with. He just says, the wife of Uriah. Rehoboam, verse 7, was Solomon's son. He was a horribly wicked king. Acted extremely foolish. So unwise, actually, that the kingdom divided under his reign. They'd just gotten a king. Right, they just kind of established themselves in the promised land. Now they've got King David, a man after God's own heart. It's just two generations later where we have the wickedness of Rehoboam that leads to this kingdom being divided already. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And then you get into some of these names that maybe we're less familiar with. right? Abijah, he was a bad king. Jehoshaphat was a good king. Joram was another bad one. Between Joram and Uzziah, three generations are escaped. Possibly, purposefully. They were three horribly wicked generations. You can read about them in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. In Matthew's first readers, they would have known that these generations were wicked. It would have been a significant omission in the line. We keep going a few more than Amos is named or Amon should have been. Again, Matthew is up to something in a literary sense. Amos, like Asaph, wasn't a king. He also wasn't a psalmist like Asaph, but rather a prophet. Amos was a prophet of justice and judgment. Again, probably a clue as to how we're to read this text, because the second of the three sets ends in the Babylonian exile we after years of disobedience and not trusting in God, not worshiping Him exclusively. God's kings have been dethroned, God's people deported, and God's land ruled and possessed by foreigners. That's where we're at in the story. And the third set gets us quickly to Zerubbabel, who led the first group of Israelites back to Jerusalem after a 70-year exile. You can read about that in the Old Testament book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And about this point, you're thinking, "Gosh, am I might have to read the whole thing." Yes. Yeah. yeah. God's people returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the wall. They lived there, but but Israel as a nation, they they never really, it never really regained all its glory. The throne was never. It's never really reestablished. And then after Zerubbabel, believe it or not, none of these guys' names in Matthew 1 are in the Old Testament. Which means Matthew relied on intermediate sources that we don't have in the Bible for these names, which eventually culminated in Jacob, and then Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was. Now step back from all of that for just a minute, and, and look at what Matthew's doing here. Three sets of 14. In the first set, there's this upward trajectory, right? From Abraham, who the promise was made that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. A tumultuous uprising? Yes, absolutely. Yet one that culminated with David on the throne. King David on the throne. Ruling. Reigning. A man after God's own heart. And God made a promise to David. Your throne will be established forever. Things are looking good for God's people, aren't they? Set two, then, is the downward trajectory. From Solomon to Rehoboam and the kingdom divided and the wicked kings and some good ones mixed in there. But in general, things spiral down and down until eventually his people are deported. Exiled. And then the third set, the return from exile which is also accompanied with waiting. Waiting. See, not long after the return from exile, though the prophets proclaimed a coming one, a Messiah who would come and reestablish and rule from David's throne, not long after the return from exile, things go silent. After the prophet Malachi, the last book in your Old Testament, there's no prophetic words. The prophecies cease for like 400 years. And God's people, they eventually come under Roman rule. And it stays that way until our New Testament opens, right? You see what Matthew's doing here? He takes us through the rise, down the fall, and into the waiting. The waiting, the longing, the the hoping, the the wondering, even. Will, will God really do what he promised to do? Is he really in control of all things? Or is Rome? Is he really good? Has he forgotten about us? Hey, do you resonate with the waiting this morning? The wondering? The longing? Is He going to bless the nations? Will He reestablish the throne? He's going to make good on these promises? That's where Matthew takes us. Into the waiting. Into the longing. The waiting for the advent. Which is just this word that simply means coming. Or arrival. Matthew takes us into the waiting, into the longing for the advent of the Messiah, the Anointed One. The One whom the prophet Isaiah spoke of saying... For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and of His peace, there's going to be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom, He's going to be there to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Matthew, do you see it? He takes us into the waiting. He takes us into the waiting for the Deliverer, into the waiting for the the Savior. And he says, the wait is over. The wait is over. See, Matthew's not trying to provide a fully filled out history of the family for us. But rather, he's writing to tell how Jesus came and fulfilled all of history for us. Let me just look back at verse 1 to to see it. He writes the, the book of genealogy. Genealogy is the Greek word for Genesis. Sound familiar to anyone? It should. It means beginning. It's the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, Matthew says it's the beginning of Jesus. Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Matthew is telling us that this is the beginning of Yahweh saves. The wait is over. He's the Christ. Matthew calls Him Jesus Christ. Christ is the equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. This is the Messiah who has come the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, who has been sent from Yahweh Himself to save. And guess what else? He's the Son of David. That's, the part, that's part of the whole list of names. It's part of what it's designed to show. He's the Son who would be King forever. And not only is He the Son of David, He's the Son of Abraham. Abraham. Through Him, through Jesus, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You see the title, Son of David, it says, Israel, here's your Messiah. And the title, Son of Abraham, it says, nations, here is your hope. Verse 1 functions as this summary for the rest of the passage as Matthew takes us through the three-ring binder and he evokes the emotions and the nostalgia and our waiting and our longing. Running through the generations. The rise to David. The fall to exile. The return from exile was Zerubbabel. And then, can you picture this? At some point in that third section, as it was read, your Jewish grandpa would have said, wait a minute, I know that name. I've heard that name before. Eliud, that's Eleazar's old man. And then you hear Eleazar, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called, wait for it, Christ. Make no mistake, church. This was good news. For a first century Jew, there was no better news. The genealogy, this genealogy is gospel. The good news of the first advent brought to fulfillment everything Israel had been waiting and longing for. Matthew loves that word fulfill. He uses it multiple times through the first two chapters here. Pointing out how Jesus came and fulfilled everything the Old Testament is trying to say. And there's also a double meaning here for us if we'll tease this word out a little bit. Tease this word out, fulfillment. So turn over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. It's to the right, about 50 pages or so. Luke chapter 2. Let's tease out this idea of fulfillment. Luke chapter 2, verse 25, starts out this way. It says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, just stop right there and ponder that phrase. Waiting for the consolation of Israel? For like 400 years he's been waiting? Think about the patience that this requires, right? I mean, he's not 400 years old, but he's been waiting in this line of, of men and generations for the consolation of Israel. I don't know about you, but I get impatient waiting for the little circle on Netflix to finish loading. Like, seriously, Netflix? i got to wait... 10 seconds to get from 95% to 100%. It's so irritating, isn't it? Simeon had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, this isn't long after Jesus was born, right? They bring in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Simeon took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation and you have prepared, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. Look what Simeon says here. Simeon says, I can die in peace now. But why? He was fulfilled, he was satisfied. He'd been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the Messiah to come and comfort His people. And now His eyes had seen salvation. The Savior. The Comforter. But also a a light for the Gentiles. The hope of nations. And with all of that, He was sad. See, when Matthew's first readers read this genealogy back in our text, it wasn't simply that they came to understand that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises, but more, that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises, and His fulfilling was fulfilling. Like Simeon, they would have experienced satisfaction in God. Peace in their soul. Good news. of Great joy. Well, that's what it told them. What does it tell us? Lots of things. I'm going to try to contain myself to two. But number one, the first thing this passage in Matthew 1 tells us is that we need to be careful not to narrowize the gospel. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we can get into a theological rut where we define the gospel, right? That word just means good news. Where we can define the gospel narrowly in that we will say that the gospel is that Jesus died for my sins. Now that's true. And it's good news, isn't it? But it's a it's a narrow view of the good news. Maybe we'll add a little something to that. Maybe we got a little you know, theological weight or some theological chops, and so we'll say that you know the, the gospel is that we are justified, right? We are made right before God, not by our own works, but by grace through faith. And again, that's true. It is it's, that's good news, but it's still a narrow view of the good news. And I'm not gonna, I'm gonna bag on you if you call that the gospel, right? That is absolutely essential to the gospel. Understanding that we are justified by grace through faith is essential to the gospel, and the gospel is not gospel without that a part of the gospel. But it's still narrow. But I'm not going to hate on you if you you call that the the gospel. In fact, theologian J.I. Packer, slightly smarter than me, says that we can sum up the gospel in a nutshell with three words. That God saves sinners. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And that's true. And it's, it's fine to say. So long as we don't lose track of the broadness of the gospel that we are indeed summing up in the nutshell. I mean, the whole point of a summing something up in the nutshell is that there's something more than what ends up in the nutshell that you're summing up. And this passage helps us to remember Some of that something, some of the the broadness that gets summed up in the nutshell. It helps us to remember, for example, that the truth that God the Father sent Jesus the Son into the world, that's good news. That's good news. It was amazing news to them, and it's amazing news to us. How is it amazing news to us? Well, it means, for one thing, that we have a Savior, a great high priest, who was not unacquainted with our sufferings. Anyone in here experienced suffering in the last year? Just a few of us, I bet. Yeah. We have a great high priest who is not unacquainted with our sufferings. That's good news. It also means that God fulfills His promises. The truth that God the Father sent His Son means that God fulfills His promises. That's good news. It's good news, is it not, that we don't have a God who does... Go back, seas. That's good news. Our God, is no, He's never been a God who says, yeah, you know, I, I know I told you I was going to do that, but now I'm not. He's never done that. He fulfills His promise. It's good news that we don't say that Jesus was the Son of David. No, He is the Son of David. He's not dead. He conquered the grave and ascended into heaven, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. On what? Just the throne. The throne. He sits on the throne where he continues to rule and reign. His kingdom has been established forever. He's the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. I mean, what would the gospel be without our ruling and reigning king on the throne? I and mean, we'd be forgiven, and that'd be nice but we'd be left believing that the chaos of life that we see around us is completely spinning out of control. But what good news it is instead that Jesus is the Son of God ruling and reigning over everyone and everything, everywhere. He's in control. And it's good news that He's in control because it means you don't have to be. Likewise, it's good news that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Again, we don't say he was the son of Abraham, he's alive. And He is the son of Abraham. Paul says in Galatians 3 that those promises back in Genesis 12 were made to Abraham's offspring. Singular. He does not say offsprings, Paul says, but offspring who is Christ. In other words, through Jesus, Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is good news for us Gentiles. 2,000 years on this side of the first advent. If you're here and you're not a Christian, guess what? This is good news for you. This is good news for your family and friends who you're going to spend time with this month who are far from Jesus. That Jesus continues to be the son of Abraham. That blessing, right, salvation in this case, is available to all who in faith would turn to him. All of this is good news. We need to be careful not to narrowize the good news, but rather delight in the fullness of the good news. It's also good news that Jesus will one day return. The second advent. And sin and brokenness are finally and fully abolished. When He comes to wipe away every tear from your eye, you realize we're not going to need doctors in heaven? No visits to the ER. No visits to the funeral home. No visits with your pastor to confess that sin again. Sin and suffering and pain, it's all going to be gone. When Christ returns. It's good news that Jesus will one day return when our hoping and our longing, our waiting are no more. That leads me into the second thing this passage tells us. And that's that God is faithful. He's faithful. In some ways, this is what I've been saying the entire sermon. God is faithful. Even when we're faithless, He's faithful. Paul wrote to Timothy. He's faithful to fulfill His promises. That's what Matthew is showing us here. It's what he's going to continue to show us in these two chapters. That Jesus has come and He's fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about Him. And all that fulfilling puts on display God's faithfulness. You realize that that means that that when he comes again, he's faithful to fulfill the promise that you, if you trust in Christ, belong to him and always will. That's a faithful promise right there. And he's faithful to that promise. He's faithful to uphold the promise that all it takes to be united with Christ and and reconciled to the Father into all eternity is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's it. And when he comes again, he's going to fulfill that promise, and you're, going to, you're not even going to be able to believe it. You're going to be like, well, that's it? That's all I, seriously, all I really had to do was trust in Jesus, and that he died on the cross for my sins? Yeah, that's it. That's all you had to do. He's not going to come back and say, you know, actually, I really needed you to go to church every Sunday. Actually, I really needed you to get your act cleaned up. Actually, I really needed you to do X, Y, and Z. He's just going to come back and say, have you placed your faith confidently in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And if so, he's faithful to fulfill the promise that you will belong to him forever. doesn't dismiss our sin, does it? It doesn't diminish the fact that God continues to do the work of sanctification in us here on this earth. But listen, our justification our right standing with God is never and never will be based on our sanctification. He never looks and says, hey, how you doing? Because if you're doing good enough, then you're in good with me. Oh, it works the other way around. He says, you're in good with me because of Jesus. Now, how you doing? Also means that as we wait here, as we long, and hope for Christ's return. We can rest in the faithfulness of God who's never broken a single one of his promises or ever given us a reason to think that he's about to start that now. Look to the First Advent Church and see the faithfulness of God there. And like Simeon in the temple in Luke chapter 2, be fulfilled and rest in the faithfulness of God. Our eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. As believers, we've tasted and seen, haven't we? Good news of great joy. His fulfilling is fulfilling. See, because Jesus came and fulfilled, we get to live fulfilled as we wait for him to return and finally fulfill as we wait for the second advent. Let's pray. Oh, Father, We praise You this morning for Your faithfulness. Your faithfulness on display in the sending of Your Son, Jesus. Born a child and yet a King. Fulfill us this morning, Lord, in this season. As we look at how You faithfully fulfill all Your promises in Jesus. Holy Spirit, satisfy us in our waiting. Satisfy us in our longing, in our hoping. Satisfy us in a way that makes everything else we try to satisfy ourselves with pale in comparison. We praise You this morning, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ our son of David, son of Abraham. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.